This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Old Souls and Mischievous Urchins, writing child characters in speculative fiction. So, this week is brought to you by Jules Has Been Reading. <laughs> yes, Jules in Reading a Book, shocker. <laughs> Gasp. <laughs> yeah, I stumbled across one of my pet peeves. Um, obviously, I have more pet peeves than I thought I did. But um, this is a child character who is used basically as a mouthpiece for adult ideas and dialogue rather than being a developed character in their own right. So mm. basically, I just don't like characters to not be fully developed characters, full stop. Yeah. But this is this is kind of an irritation rather than something I'd go to war over. Yeah. Um, but it got me thinking. Um, it's not really something we've kind of touched on in much detail before. So, yeah, we thought we could talk about this. Um, obviously a lot goes into characterization and we've done many episodes on that subject however there is something different in how you create a child character yeah absolutely um and it's not just about sort of how different children can be and also how different different age groups can be and stuff like that you know this also varies depending on who your eventual audience is and of course people's mileage is gonna vary too um, but we're going to talk about how we do it and what we think works best and maybe draw on some examples of texts we feel have done it well and texts we feel might have missed the mark just a tiny bit. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so uh, our first little note for discussion is that children are not mini adults. What? Um, <laughs> I know, weird, right? Um <laughs> But, I mean, there are huge differences in mindset, perspective, and brain chemistry between children and adults in real yeah. life. And, yeah, that should be reflected in fiction. Mm -hmm. So, at times, you could almost be dealing with two different species. If you spent any time with a child and watched a child reasoning their way through something, and then compare it to how you as an adult would now reason your way through something, it, it's two completely different sets of logic. It, it's two completely different ways of looking at the world. It really is. Whenever I, I try and think about it, there's... um. Uh, have you heard of the band Flight of the Concords? Yes. <laughs> yeah, so Flight of the Concords, they did this special, I think it was for children in need or something like that, and they went to the school to... Um, to kind of talk to kids and talk to them about sort of, you know, when were they most sick and, and to basically ask them to help with the lyrics. And there was this child who, who you know, said, oh, one time I got very, very sick. And they said, why? Why did you get very sick? She said, because I drank bubble mixture. <laughs> and they went, why would you drink bubble mixture? And she looked at them like it was the most obvious thing in the world. And she went, because I wanted to be a bubble. And <laughs> I remember thinking, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You cannot, f <laughs> you cannot floor that logic. Yeah, that is I mean, child logic, one hundred percent. It was just the way she looked at them. Like, well, obviously, because I wanted to be a bubble. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can give a couple of personal examples actually, and the things that used to catch me as a as a very small child. So we're talking sort of 
um, three to seven years old. Mm. But what used to catch me was the way that words can be slippery and they can sound like one thing and mean something completely different. So, for example, the word nightmare. As a very small child, I genuinely believed that a nightmare was kind of this sort of ragged horse creature that came and gave you bad dreams. Um, weirdly, and I, I remember telling this to my dad, and, and I'd really, really envisioned this. I was a very visual child, mm. and it was this big sort of dark horse with blazing red eyes and a raggedy grey mane, and it was quite terrifying, actually. My imagination was not my best friend. Um, and I remember telling dad about it, and he was kind of like, where did you get that rubbish from? Fast forward years and years later, I find out that the word nightmare literally comes from this idea of a hag or a nightmare who rides you while you're sleeping and gives you bad dreams. <laughs> so somehow I'd made this weird etymological kind of leap because yeah. to me that made logical sense. But an adult would just know it as that's a word for a bad dream. Yeah. Without necessarily going through why is it a mare? Why is it a type of horse? Rather, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And the other one, which is stupider, is the word custody. Now, as a child, a very small child, I would hear things like, and the police have remanded him in custody. Now, I didn't know what remanded <laughs> was, but I guessed it meant held somehow. And custody made no sense to me. And I assumed it meant for some reason they had imprisoned this guy in a big vat of custard. Because that made as much sense to me as putting someone pretty much anywhere else. I mean, if you're stuck in a vat of custard, you're not going to be off doing any naughty stuff, are you? So, And again, remember telling my dad this. He's like, who tells you these things? <laughs> and I did not have the words to say, this is just how my brain works, dad. You've given me no further information. What does custody really mean? And give me etymological examples, because otherwise it's not going to sink in. It, the... I swear, wasn't there an old TV show called Custard, which was about being in, uh, about inmates in prison? Do you mean porridge? Porridge, sorry, not custard. I'm being <laughs> that an was idiot. Even a, that was even a tiny bit before my time, so I didn't yeah, see um, much of it. No, I, I wasn't. I wasn't sort of suggesting that you've watched <laughs> it, but just your story reminded me of the time that my brother and I were clearing out DVDs. We were moving. Sorry, not DVDs, uh, videos. We were um, VHS back in the day. Back um, in the day. And we were, we'd been asked to sort of sort out which ones we wanted to keep, which ones to sort of get rid of. And we found this DVD that just said porridge. And we laughed and laughed <laughs> and laughed so hard because we just envisioned it's just it's just 45 minutes of just porridge on screen. <laughs> you just you just sit and watch, you're like, mm, mm that's good porridge. <laughs> oh, gosh, to be a child. You have such fun. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, and I, it depends what sort of child you are as well, because mm. all children are different, but... I was a child who very much needed the explanation for how things worked and what went on behind things. But it was nearly always that the the double meaning of words that would trip me up. Yeah. Um. But yeah, sorry. Um, get, getting back to our getting back to our list. Um. So you know, just those sort of little examples. <laughs> mm. Like, oh God, what was it? It was a boy in assembly at school. 
and obviously he had trouble with the word hallowed now obviously hallowed means you know sacred or to make holy Mm -hmm. but to a four-year-old child hallowed doesn't make sense so when we were saying the lord's prayer bearing in mind i went to a catholic primary school and then a catholic girls school later on yeah during the lord's prayer you get to the point and hallowed be thy name and he was saying and harold be thy name (laughs) (laughs) because it made far more sense to him and then there is a logic to this yes I mean, it, like, and Harold is even a name in the Bible. What are you supposed to do? It's like, well, okay, I guess God's sacred name in this prayer is Harold, because <laughs> hallowed makes no sense. I mean, there's a less funny example where there was a hymn we had to learn, and it was about the Virgin Mary, and um, there's a line that goes, and love and beauty you portray. Now, I didn't understand the word portray, but I did know the word betray, and I was, you know, st- stymied. For a couple of years about why she would be betraying love and beauty was is it is it because we're not supposed to like these things <laughs> but that doesn't make sense so, so yeah it, it's you know when when creating a child character especially a young child character that weird way of looking at the world where they have limited information <laughs> So they're going to make the story that, that kind of fits based on that limited information is um, something that's worth considering. Absolutely. It's it's also one of those amazing things where when chi- when children give their child logic and it, it makes sense, that's the other thing, right? I think sometimes people try and portray children... <laughs> And they, they're like, well, this is child logic. And you're like, okay, but you haven't actually made it make sense. A child's logic will make sense to them. It's like, weirdly enough, and I can't believe there's a crossover here, but there is. It's like when you're <laughs> writing serial killers. Um, <laughs> okay, that, that's a leap, but you know, take us through it. Um, so often, because I teach a module on the gothic, we so often the gothic, you just get the... And he, she killed everyone because she was crazy. And you're like, no, that's just lazy. That's lazy writing. Um, you People don't just go on a, a killing spree, um, you know. And, and if they do go on a killing spree, there's usually very specific reasons for why they are acting in the way that they're acting. Even if it sounds, you know, it doesn't make any logical sense to us. It makes logical sense to them. It's like in... Um, uh, the Telltale Heart, you know, the beating of the heart, it makes sense to the murderer why the, you know, the evil eye is so frightening and stuff like that. Um, and everything they do is in relation to that. So it's not just random. And it's the same with children's logic. It's not just random. It is based on the information that they have at any given time. And you really need to reflect that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's the other thing to consider is children have their own lists of priorities, their own social strata. I can't stress that one enough. Mm -hmm. Um, And their own set of social norms. Um, They've learned to move in a world populated by adults, but a lot of the the time it doesn't really make sense to them. Again, limited information. Yeah. Adults are weird and dangerous creatures a lot of the time. Yeah. Um. (laughs) <laughs> You're just going to leave it there. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that is a bit sinister. Okay, um, very build, sinister. Building up from that. In the same way that adults 
an awful lot of adults sadly lose the ability to reason the way a child would and see it from their perspective particularly mm. if they're busy it's usually a case of they're, they're being hasty and they have to get things done quickly therefore they can't stop and think how a child would have thought through something yeah and that's a bit of a shame but you know we're all guilty of it at some point absolutely um, but in in the same way the, the you know the child adult divide from a child's perspective adults are kind of god and they're kind of the things they do are arbitrary they are as arbitrary as the way god is supposed to move so ineffable um, is, is it ineffable is it more a case of you know it, i think it goes further than that i think it's down to this sort of amygdala type feeling of well i'm small you're big i you're strong i'm weak kind of thing yeah um, and, you know, that is really part of a child's world. And I suppose if you become someone who is, you know, bigger and stronger, etc., you might lose that. You might lose that sense of that there could be somebody who could pretty much do, make you do what they want kind of thing. I don't necessarily mean that in a sinister way either, no, but just, no. in, just in the sense of sending you to bed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's one of those... I mean, I, I certainly thought that my pa my parents had a lot more power over pretty much everything when I was a kid than they ever possibly could. Well, yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. The other thing, sort of obviously with children, is that they are constantly being flooded with new information. Yes. Um, you know, so depending on the age, um, and there is obviously a huge variation in mindset between ages where a mere year can make a huge difference. And this is one of the, the interesting things. As an adult, if you are, you know, like 30 and you know someone who is 35, you're pretty much going to be in the same ballpark. Yeah, that's the same peer group. It's it's this you're in the same peer group. You you know, you feel kind of similar in age. If you are 12 and you meet someone who is fifth who is um 17, you are on opposite ends. Similarly, if you are 3 and you have someone who is 8, completely opposite ends. That 5-year gap is huge, but not just that. If you compare people who are, you know, um 11 to 13, that's a big jump actually yeah or even four and six it's yeah. a huge and uh, you know there's there's all sorts of development and stuff that's been going on mm. um so so yeah it does make a really big difference um and going back to children being constantly flooded with new information it's like they might be very interested in what you were saying genuinely yeah but the tv is in equally interesting and the fly buzzing around the room is just as interesting and the fact that they've just remembered what they had for lunch and need to tell you about it is just as interesting yeah um and you know as jules mentioned before children do have their own priorities and things like that it's one of the key things of sort of parenting is understanding that what is big to a child may seem small and trivial to you but to them it is huge and it's why if you consistently dismiss children um, for what you seem to be small kind of small issues, which, you know, you, you tell them off for kind of crying or getting very upset about, ultimately, um, you are harboring in them an inability to, to kind of trust you with their problems and they will stop coming to you because these things are huge. When you're a toddler, you know, discovering 
that the mashed potatoes in front of you are not ice cream, despite the fact that no one told you they were ice cream and you and they explicitly told you it was mashed potato is devastating. Absolutely devastating. Their so, understanding of the world has been crushed. You know? <laughs> I, I remember when Sarah and I were very small. I don't think I'd have been much more than five, which means she would have been four. Mm-hmm. And we were waiting for our breakfast. And mum was on the phone to work and she was, you know, it may not have been the hours and hours we felt it was because time moves differently when you're a child. Yes. But it was long enough that, you know, we were kind of like, we're really hungry and no food is forthcoming. (laughs) And, you know, we've tried to interrupt mum and she's not having any of it. She just keeps sending us away kind of thing. So Sarah decides to get her own breakfast. And I knew that this was a bad idea because I've, you know, we've been told not to, we've been told to wait. But she yeah. goes off and does it anyway. She comes back with a bowl of cereal and she's piled sugar all over it. Mm-hmm. And then she starts eating. <laughs> After she's taken two mouthfuls, I shouldn't laugh really, she started crying. <laughs> and I just, I was just kind of, it's like, what's wrong? She couldn't tell me. She didn't really have the language to tell me. And finally mum came in. <laughs> And asked, you know, what was going on and couldn't we keep quiet for five minutes, etc. And Sarah's sobbing her heart out over this bowl of cereal that's gone increasingly soggy that she cannot eat. And it turns out that Sarah had not found the sugar, she'd found the salt. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so yes, that's, that's what happened there. (laughs) But yes, it was kind of, you know, from her perspective, it was a world-ending thing. Now I'm laughing at it because it's funny in hindsight. But Yeah, absolutely. But it's also things like, you know, school crushes and stuff like that. Like, and this is, you know, we see this in the way that people react to, um, you know, uh, YA and stuff. And they're like, oh, it's so arbitrary. And I'm like, yeah, but at the time... It's not arbitrary at all. This is a huge kind of significant moment and part of the teenage experience, um, which is important and will kind of sort of, you know, is them feeling out, understanding their own power, their own position, etc. It's really integral. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, And again... uh... I don't think I really had this experience as a teenager, but, I, you know, I think a lot of teenagers do where, you know, the the first sort of like, oh, he doesn't like me back, it's the end of the world, you know, sobs and wails kind of thing, or, you know, setting things on fire if you're a boy, apparently. <laughs> what? <laughs> this, is, this is what I've been told. Um, but, and then it's like a week, if not less, and they've forgotten all about it. Yeah, we're talking quite young teenagers, and it you know it's it's just gone. So, and it is it, it's all part of the same thing. Yeah. Also, just a small aside, I refuse to believe you were ever a teenager. <laughs> no, well, we've discussed this. I was first of all a grumpy old woman trapped in a child's body, and then yeah. trapped in an adolescent's body, and then a twenty-somethings. And you know, just as I edge it, in, you know, through my forties, I'm heading towards you know the appropriate age for my actual internal <laughs> age. <laughs> I yep. will reach my peak <laughs> and then die apparently but then, you know no <laughs> <laughs> let's not even talk about that okay um, 
<laughs> I'm afraid, yeah, I have to say, I think I'm a bit of an edge case, so I'm probably not the best example of, you know, how a child would have acted. <laughs> no, but but also it does go to show that, you know, children are all different as well. Not all children are going to act the same. Um, they They vary. Yeah. yeah Weirdly absolutely. enough. <laughs> so, um, yeah, these are all important things to consider when writing your child character. Yes. Um, now, I do kind of feel like it's really important to recognise that writing a child character is going to... There's going to be a shift in how you write them, whether you are aiming the work towards children or aiming it towards adults. Now, I am of the thorough belief that if you are writing for adults and you don't write a child character properly, it is kind of noticeable. And I say this as someone who has struggled to write child characters when it's not geared towards children. Mostly because I'm like, what? <laughs> what are children? What even is age? I'm, I'm at that stage where someone's like, here's a picture of a child. And I'm like, I cannot identify how old that child is or how old they, they look. I have no idea. It's really bad. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a difference. So um, let's talk about writing children for other children to start yes. with. Um, so... As said, there's a difference in how you write child characters and adults, to be honest, um, for children. Um, the main thing is that obviously when you write for children, the child character are their peers. You know, they are their access point to the story. The child is meant to find themselves reflected in the character. And not us not only that, often the child wants to... Um, sorry, this is a, a really sort of little interesting uh, aside. Um, if you ever sort of see children writing, they are not writing for children. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah, I, and I think... I mean, one of the things I most liked at primary school was when we got into, I think I was about nine, we got yeah. to that age and we were allowed to start writing our own stories. And I don't think I was ever writing for other children. No. Looking back. Like, children write about really dark stuff. Um, and that's this is the, the thing that sort of really re needs to be recognised. Children obviously understand that they are children, but they don't see themselves as being really quintessentially that different from adults. In some ways, they kind of see themselves as superior. Um, in some ways. You know? Yeah. So... <laughs> so when you actually... You kind of... You ha you're writing for children and you are creating that access point. You can't write for children with them being kind of powerless or things like that. Because... A child won't want to read that story where a, a character is just powerless and they are just complaining or crying the entire time. Which, to be honest, if you were in a real war scenario or something like that, um, you know, suddenly, um, might actually be a bit more accurate um, for a number of different reasons. Uh, trauma be like that and whatnot. Um, you know, children don't want to see that. They want to see themselves being the heroes. They want to see themselves recognised as being awesome. 
So immediately the way you were going to write the child is going to be different. Definitely. And especially if you're writing fantasy or science fiction for children, I think, yeah. and, you know, at the younger end of the scale as well, particularly. Yeah. Um, you might have a child who is, let's say, very, very frightened of spiders or something. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it's a, it's a small fear, but it's something that they can understand. And then they're doing this wonderful adventure which teaches them to manage fear. Yeah. But, you know, it's not as bald as that. And then you, you then come back to the real world at the end, if you like, and actually the spiders aren't really quite as bad as they thought. Exactly. Now, what's really important to recognise is that even though you were obviously writing these characters in positions of, of usually power, and usually it does they do have to kind of overcome things, you cannot write an adult character in a child's body. Um, children will recognise that this is not a child. They won't associate with them. Um, now, what I'm saying here is very much is, obviously, you can write an adult in a child's body if, for magic reasons, this is an adult who's been shrunken into a child. But, we'll, we'll get to that. But we'll get to that in a little bit. What we're talking about is you're trying to write a child and you're writing them as just completely as an adult. It's going to be very hard to convince children also depending on the age to believe this or to engage with this character yeah definitely and children are you know they're like bloodhounds they're very good at sniffing out imposters they are (laughs) they will just reject it the way you can get around writing what is essentially a much older character that's accessible to children is if you make your main character an animal of some kind yes Or, you know, a magical creature of some kind. But generally, you still have to have some, some crossover. There still has to be sort of the, a childlike problem to get over. Yes, and usually if you do have a, a character who is kind of in a sort of an adult role, um, they, are, they usually have some kind of child character with them whether that is a companion whether it's another animal etc so they so even those characters tend to be offset in some respect yeah definitely um i've heard this from a lot of writers of junior fiction and they Mm. say that being able to remember how they felt and thought as a child really helped them get the voice right for a protagonist in their books and generally i would tend to agree with that but then Mm. i have to say i'm someone who remembers pretty much everything so I remember how it felt to be a child and I remember the difference between being four and being six and being 12 etc yeah Um, okay a lot of it for me was just frustration (laughs) that I still couldn't do what I wanted but I remember the difference in mindset um Mm. it, it comes as a real surprise to me that there are so many people who don't really remember very much that happened to them before they were six or seven and that there are so many people who ha- have very few childhood memories at all. It's all kind of a bit of a blank that's being shoved back. And then, like, you know, the people who have the most difficulty connecting with children seem to be those who really have just put the childhood behind them and forgotten about it. Yeah. And I, I just find it... I, I do, I'm not saying there's anything wrong. I'm just saying I find it bizarre, personally. Yeah. I mean, Jules, we do have to accept the fact that you are a bit weird, in that yeah, respect since most uh, since the, it is actually kind of normal but certainly not to kind of have any kind of recollections i mean there might be any number of reasons for that not least trauma and things along those lines can obviously pay, 
play a large part into what you can yeah, remember but, of your childhood. But even without any trauma or whatever at all, there's the majority of people seem to fall into that I don't remember very much from my early life. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Which, I, again, I just find weird. But then, admittedly, my first memory is of being bathed in the sink when I was around sort of five or six months old. You're, so You're a weirdo. Which I admit is as weird in the other direction. <laughs> I could describe the first house we lived in, and I only lived in that house up until sort of about five months old. So that is very strange, that I is, admit. It is. It's very strange. And I say that with the greatest affection <laughs> for you. But you're a weirdo anyway moving on <laughs> moving on okay so what if you're somebody who doesn't remember things that happened as a child well you know apparently that's normal so go you but also <laughs> there are other things you can do instead and a big thing is to use your observation skills so talk to children obviously don't just randomly go up to them in a playground or the street or something because that will give people the wrong idea yeah <laughs> but i mean you can assist there's, there's children's groups you can assist with you can sit in a library there will be children in there at some point and you can eavesdrop on their conversations with their parents or with each other yeah um, you can pick up a lot just by doing that also if you're at a certain age um it's very likely that some of your friends might have kids as well you know um or that you might have younger cousins or things like that i mean children really are all around you you might just be avoiding them <laughs> <laughs> you might well be avoiding them um you know get in the habit of, of not just humoring a child but trying to understand them so try and understand how they came to ask you the question they did or how they reasoned through a problem yeah because it's very illuminating yeah. and you can watch a few kids tv shows and read some kids books now i'll admit that some of the kids tv shows and things now don't really obviously they don't resonate with me i'm very much not the target audience mm. and they can seem a little bit bonkers and frenetic but having gone back about this is something alan and i just did for a laugh last night we watched uh, a youtube compilation of 25 of the greatest 80s kids tv cartoons and i remember these titles and things being much longer than they were for a start because obviously i was a child when i really saw them yeah and just looking at them and thinking like okay this was i thought this was really cool as a child now as an adult i think it's really cheesy and obvious yeah so that that's a big shift but also it's so frenetic the the, the the sort of pace that children want their little slips of information at is is incredibly fast i thought that was something that had changed i don't think it necessarily has in hindsight no um but this is this is the other thing is that and this is something i've definitely found with writing for children um is that children want pace but depending on obviously the exact kind of age group that you're writing for the pacing is still going to be different and also that the way that the pace is delivered is also going to be different so if you're writing for teenagers you know um obviously the pace kind of slows down um and there tends to be a greater focus on internal um whatchamacallit my brain has stopped working <laughs> the internal narrative <laughs> the internal narrative external. yes um the you know the the kind of the internal tr um 
not trauma. God, what is wrong with me? I just cannot function today. Um, uh, you know, the internal difficulties and problems that they're facing. Um, that's going to be the main focus because, you know, a lot of teenagers, this is what they're kind of experiencing. They're going through kind of understanding um, how their hearts work, um, how their, you know, sex drives work and things like that because they start to develop them and they don't necessarily know what they are or quite how they work um you know so you, you they suddenly have all these things of kind of like oh well this is how i feel and uh, uh i kind of want to do this but i'm scared about doing that etc so you kind of get that reflected obviously in the narrative um but for for middle grade let's say for or chapter books or things like that the pacing is incredibly fast um you cannot slow down really well it appears like you can't slow down for a minute um but it's literally just because actually i remember sort of as you say jill's kind of looking back and being like oh yeah this bit is really long and then you're actually you're you're rereading it as an adult and you're being like wow they just, they just skipped right through that, huh? <laughs> like we're so, I think it's the the state and assumption kind of thing as well with children. So you look at titles to kids' TV shows, um, and it's like, as an adult, you look and go, "There's a big plot hole there," and it may mm. not actually be a plot hole. It's just a case of the kid knows it doesn't need to know that, so it doesn't care. Yeah, it's like let's get to the good stuff. Exactly, yeah. It's like, a, I don't care how they arrived in time. All I care about is whether they're going to get the sword of truth, It's like Paw Patrol. Um, <laughs> Paw Patrol is something my niece, my nieces and nephew really, really love, Paw Patrol. And it's like, as an adult, part of me is going, why are all these puppies, and they're puppies, not fully grown dogs, why are they all working in different areas of... of you know social service so you know a police dog and a fire dog and a rescue dog and and also why is it that the dogs are talking and the boy can understand them it's, <laughs> it's never explained it's kind of like paw patrol we have the the token child character on board and then the fire truck driving dog is is on the case and it's just <laughs> and it's so fast as well but it's a case of the kids like, no, I'm willing to accept that we live in a world where this can happen. That's fine. I don't need that explained to me. Yeah, it just makes total sense. Total, total sense. I mean, admittedly, this is for a younger child rather than an older child. Whereas if you look back at some of the programmes that were for, you know, in my day, as it were, um, when they gave you a little bit more explanation. So things like, did you, I was going to say to Madeline, did you ever watch this? But I bet it was before her time. It was Teabag. No. <laughs> they had various, various... I know that sounds really dicey as well. It really That's super does. <laughs> but it, it was kind of... It was kind of like a slipstream fantasy type thing and the main character was always a girl. There, was always, there were various different incarnations of this. Mm -hmm. And the um, main... You know, the, the girl had to like either collect letters of the alphabet or magical items or whatever mm -hmm. and trying to stop them was a witch called Teabag all the way through. And she always, always had the same assistant, except he wasn't the same. He was a little boy called T-Shirt. And in, invariably, T-Shirt would always end up helping the main character in the end. <laughs> this sounds really naff now, but it's got more plot than some of the earlier stuff. Like, 
um, Madeline and I were giggling about the original incarnation of He-Man, for example, <laughs> which, you know, really doesn't have an awful lot of plot at all. But you accepted it as a child because, and this is not me saying, you know, write your books like people produced 80s cartoons because children do actually demand a lot out of story. It's just they don't necessarily demand the pages of introspection an adult wants. Yeah, it's it always makes me... Uh, because this is the interesting thing. Um, we can say, oh, TV... This this is the argument we constantly have, which is, uh, oh, TV used to be better. TV used to be better. When we were kids, we had, you know, this, that and the other. Um, and it's this weird thing where sometimes I find that that you know I, i'm like ah yeah actually uh tv used to be terrible they, they literally just put whatever they wanted on the kids and it was like and then at the same time um i've watched rewatched um justice league yeah it's really good <laughs> like incredibly good the the whole pacing and you know yes absolutely but also they have this kind of this continued story etc same with earth's mightiest heroes great sense of humor and things like that and continued story arcs and it's this strange thing where um what happened was we went from having these kind of story arcs on tv um to having uh, things that followed more of the the sitcom or the tragic style plot, and what I mean by tragic style plot is that at the end of every episode, everything would reset. Um, you know, because essentially what needed to happen is that you needed to be able to the network needed to be able to sort of play reruns um, yeah. whenever they wanted, so you couldn't really have things in in any particular order because you couldn't guarantee that children were all going to be able to kind of watch it. And it was this idea of, okay, we, you know, we don't actually need this to be, have a, have a, a great plot or anything like that. Uh, we just kind of need it to sort of be kind of mindless entertainment for a few minutes every week. Yeah. Which is why you then had the titles that explained the backstory. Yeah, so I'm, I'm thinking particularly of things like Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, you know, oh hey look, a Dungeons and Dragons ride, and then you just get the ex- explanation of, you know, this Dungeons and Dragons ride sort of portals them to an alternate universe, and suddenly they're this team of um, warriors, magicians, thieves, and acrobats kind of thing who are up against the one-horned Venger, and it's like that. That all happens in in the title, so you know, and that title sequence is really really fast. It, I do. It, it's like a. It's like a. He must save his family from the curse of stone and evil lizards. And just, I think that was Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this just keeps getting worse and worse for Conan. <laughs> like, yeah, this so... is extreme, but is exactly kind of child logic. Um, and yeah, so it, it kind of went from there being stuff for children, which accepted, no, children are intelligent, they're smart, um, they do want consistency to, we're not going to deliver consistency, because um, this show isn't actually meant to kind of really occupy your time, it's just sort of meant to kind of just be there, as it were. Uh, yeah. for a few minutes of light entertainment and to sell toys. And there are books that do the same now because yeah. it's a case of uh, you can have 
book series like uh, Adam Blade. Adam Blade, by the way, is about 12 authors, not just one. Mm-hmm. Um, writing under a single nom de plume um, called The Beast Quest. And they are incredibly popular and there's hundreds of those ruddy books. Yeah. Um, and, you know, kids love them both. And same with Daisy Meadows and the fairy books. Again, about 12 or 13 authors all yeah. writing under that. And they don't follow sequentially. Because you would never be able to sell a series that was hundreds of books long, sequentially, you know, that had to be read sequentially. No publisher would go, yeah, that, that sounds like a good plan. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that would be nuts. Um, also, these books are often there because they're chapter books, aren't they? Uh, yeah, for, I'm not a fan of that terminology, but they kind of are. Yeah, as in like, they're there to kind of, they're there in order to sort of help teach kids to... Oh, no, of... no, no, these, these are up from those yeah but as in yeah. the, but they're part of the kind of the reading they're, they're younger junior fiction but they're not part yeah. of any reading program no no i didn't think they were part of a reading program or anything like that i i meant more along the lines of you know they are part of right you're starting to sort of read more independently you know you can read independently but it's kind of the next step before you get into sort of middle grade you know it's like it's like the step uh, how can I explain this? Well, um, in, in library terms, they're younger junior fiction, and we're getting a bit off off course here anyway. Sorry. Okay, all right. Yeah, but um, yeah, you know, they're supposed to be simple, and the child's supposed to be able to pick them up at any point. Yeah. Having said that, in the same place, in younger junior fiction, you do get trilogies. Yes. And things as well. It's, it's not that unusual. Um, but you're very unlikely to get something that's a seven-book series in that area, simply because again at that age it's usually the parents buying the books for the children the children are not just going and buying them for themselves usually yes so you know they can't guarantee that a child is going to pick up a book and go yes this is the first book in the series and having said that we have some children in the library who absolutely insist on reading things in series order (laughs) i said they're really really quite sort of very offended if you suggest they start with another book because you haven't got the one they want um i think you're right that it it does become more of a thing as you get to middle grade so if you look at like things like the ruby redford series of spy books Mm. um and obviously harry potter and you've got various other things that are the percy jackson yeah the higher end of it and and what have you because then you have kids who are more informed and more able to make their own choices with books um they've probably got a little bit more freedom they've got a bit more pocket money and yeah. they know what they want want to get so um yeah we've kind of devolved a bit into children's publishing here so sorry we should, we should pull it background but um yeah basically um without without wanting to go all new age in order to write a child character for children you must be able to access the child you were i think that's a fair to say yeah absolutely um and i think accessing the child you were isn't just about kind of trying to sort of relive memories it's you know it's something that you can kind of do by little by doing sort of little exercises for example like uh, you know or by unlearning kind of ideas that you think are sort of inherent uh for example, um, access the child you were by doing a drawing and not caring if it doesn't look very good because you just enjoy the process of drawing. Yeah. That sounds like a really simple and kind of arbitrary sort of statement. 
But honestly, you know, doing things like that, enjoy the process. Enjoy the process of getting messy and dirty, etc. Enjoy kind of these little, the sensory elements of things as well. Um, there's lots of ways you can do it and it's not just about remembering, it's about re-accessing and of course obviously depending on what age group you're writing for, but re-accessing these ideas and these feelings um, and understanding them. Yeah. Okay, let's take a quick look at look writing children for adult fiction because this is a completely different process. <laughs> Yes, okay. You're going to draw on many of the same things in terms of getting a child correct. Mm. But how you go about it is going to shift slightly. So um, my first point is that who is telling the story? Is it a child protagonist? So like To Kill a Mockingbird, Home, or even It in places? Mm -hmm. Or is it an adult with a child as a major character in the story? Um, so yeah, it's not that you would vary how you create the character, but you would definitely alter the pitch and tone. So think about how To Kill a Mockingbird is absolutely pitch perfect for a five-year-old girl. Yes, um, but also kind of it's pitch perfect for a five-year-old girl, but has kind of in order to really sort of appreciate it, you kind of you kind of need to be an older reader, as it were. Absolutely. It's a neat trick to pull off to absolutely get a child voice that perfect and to then use that child as an access point to examine things that as an adult you might be predeterminately shut to. So yes. in, in the case of To Kill a Mockingbird, it is, was obviously the racism issue. In the case of Home, which is by my friend Amanda Berryman, it's mm -hmm. very good, but it, it's looking at things like poverty, homelessness in the UK yeah. Um, the difficulties of being a single parent through the mm -hmm. eyes of a child and things like child sex abuse, unfortunately, as well. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it is, again, absolutely pitch perfect in tone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's obviously a lot of ways that you can do this, but it's a, it's a kind of a hard one, I think. Uh, personally, for me, I find it easier to write children for children's fiction yeah um, and you know it's almost a complete other subject to go how do you write a child perspective so we'll we'll skip that it's more just sort of an example for yeah now. Ab absolutely um but okay let's sort of like look at it this way assuming the character is an actual ch child you you need to ask yourself several questions which is why are they there um, and what is there about a child's perspective or a child's presence that adds to the story? Yeah, I think that's a, a really big, big deal. That's a big point. Mm. Um, because, I mean, we talked about, you know, the feel good factor. Well, actually having a child pr protagonist in there or even a child sort of tertiary character can provide the feel good factor. And that's a good reason to have one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but not necessarily to have one centre stage. <laughs> Yeah. Um, on the flip side of that, having a child character can also highlight things like the horror or the cruelty of the situation as well. So, for example, if you are writing about a war zone or you're writing about um, the uh, the Holocaust or things like that. Room by Emma Donoghue. Yeah. And I have to say that I think that book is excellent but i hate it 
with a, with a burning passion. Um, <laughs> excellent book. Not great. You know, a lot of people would probably like it, but I don't recommend it personally. Go, <laughs> okay. go for home instead. <laughs> Slightly less disturbing. Um, yeah. So what do the child perspectives add to the story? Well, I, I think it is, again, it's that access point of, as, as you've just said, um, making horror approachable mm. by removing by sort of removing the hardening that takes place. I mean, you have to sort of harden a bit as an adult, otherwise you'd never get anything done. Um, but every so often it's worth being able to take that carapace off and look at things from a child's perspective. Yeah, I think it's also... This is going to sound strange, but I feel like as well you can create horror, you can write about really horrible things without having to go into really explicit detail by writing it from a child's perspective. Yeah. Um, you know, so as in... God, I don't want to give any examples, to be honest. Um, but, you know, you can you can sort of touch on, on really horrific things which an adult reader will understand um, by how the child is describing it. But because there's almost more of a sense of question rather than inherent horror we understand what's happening because we're we're adults i mean um, it can go the other way because i found that with both home and room yeah um, that it was more impactful what was happening because the child didn't fully understand what was going on yeah absolutely um no i completely agree but there's i don't know quite how to explain it it, it kind of provides a bit of a sort of an access point i suppose is what i'm trying to say yeah um, for some, for, to be able to explore some really horrific and very hard-hitting things um, and to have something which is horrifying um, and to to show the horror by kind of showing the lack of understanding without having to go into really explicit details. Yeah. Having said that, children don't just have to turn up in adult fiction because you want to explore something horrific. Yes. Children can turn up because you want to explore things like family. Um, and you want to explore things like the main character unravelling some of his own issues which began in childhood that he's just buried, for ha perhaps. Yes. Uh, it doesn't always have to be about abuse. It can just simply be about not being able to connect with his own parents and learning to connect with his own child, um, helping him to put that sort of thing to bed kind of thing. So there's, there's many, many reasons. Sometimes you, you might just want a child in there because there's lots of children around and it would be weird if there weren't some children yeah absolutely obviously depending where where the story is set yeah i mean if it's if it's on a nuclear submarine there's very unlikely to be any ch children on board well maybe and the comedy are, is that there is <laughs> you have to have a really really good reason um if you happen to be writing most you know let's say that your protagonist is an introspective young man who writes poetry in the local park nearby where the swings are. Chances are there are going to be some children in that book. Yes, absolutely. Um, and the nice thing is that also sometimes children's characters are used as gateways for new thought. Yes. Which can be really successful. Um, so you have you know, a character who's struggling with things and then they meet a child character who doesn't even have to be in it for very long, but who basically simplifies something which 
perhaps they the the main character has been kind of wrestling with themselves by just sort of providing the easiest and obvious answer yeah definitely so other things to consider how old is the child um obviously we've gone into this but it's really important because a four-year-old does not think like a 14-year-old no but they are both children yes um just the difference between four and six is huge and you will hear six-year-olds say when i was little with something like contempt I've heard my own nieces and nephews say this, and it is hilarious every time. <laughs> when I was little, and I'm like, so you mean like six months ago then, basically. <laughs> but to them, that's a lifetime ago. This is the thing with time and children. Yeah. They are kind of time travellers in the same way that, you know, if you have a child and an 80-year-old woman, you know, the 80-year-old woman is basically a time traveller from another century. Yes, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> so you do have to think about what time means to your characters you know abstractly as well um also dialogue children have mostly not had the time to acquire adult vocabulary yeah um, your dialogue should match this without devolving into faux baby talk i think this is the thing that really bugged me about the book i read mm. it was a case of in one book in this series this boy who was eight years old suddenly had this very mature vocabulary and it was noted that this was brought in for this very emotional scene where he almost died and he's talking to his mother and comforting her in very adult language yeah. and then in the next book he was back to talking like he was about what an adult who didn't spend any time with children thought a four-year-old spoke like and the thing is a lot of four-year-olds actually speak in full sentences with yeah. syntax even if they haven't got the words right or they can't quite explain what they mean because they don't have access to the language and they have difficulty putting emotion into words they still use full sentences yeah absolutely um it <laughs> it's one of the things um that i remember in the lies of Loch Lamora is there's this one section where they're talking about the fact that um Locke and co um, because they've been surrounded by people who talk in very nasty ways, like a lot of swearing and stuff like that. Um, they've been swearing since they were very, very small. Um, but they, there's just this little section where you see Locke and he's swearing in very unnatural ways. And it's kind of explained by the fact that, uh, you know, before they, they just knew the odd bad word and they knew that they, you know, it was kind of exciting to be able to say it. Yeah. And now they're experimenting with stringing bad words together. <laughs> yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so don't baby talk basically even babies don't do baby talk i think is the thing so faux baby talk really sucks <laughs> um okay a child's life experiences are limited because they haven't been alive very long usually um yeah. so you may have a child who is very mature in their thoughts and assessments who just doesn't understand how a situation fits together that's perfectly normal yeah um, and this is the key point. A child's understanding might be very advanced and you find this with children who are naturally very empathic, but they're still children, which means that fart jokes are still hilarious. Yes. Um, and obviously they also still pray, you know, they're still prey to children's fears, such as monsters under the bed or being left behind. Now, of course, this is very much going to reflect the kind of lifestyle they've lived. If they've lived what should be a happy normal childhood um 
yes, they are going to be even, they're going to be prey to those kinds of fears. If they have been raised in a completely war-torn world, um, they're still going to be children, but they might, you know, actually react a little bit differently to some things. That would be normal, so their fears might be a little bit different. But the way that they understand things um, is still going to be through the eyes of a child who will not have all of the information available to them. Yeah, definitely. Um, we've obviously talked about fridging in relation to female characters. I would actually extend that to child characters as well. Um, they shouldn't just be child characters should not be used as mere game pieces. So they need to be full characters if you're, you know, you know, assuming that you know it's going to have a significant role in the book or whatever. Which yeah. means you can't just roll them in to be kidnapped or murdered to make your other main characters feel something. That's lazy <laughs> at best. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can... It's fine if you have a story where a child is kidnapped, but the child has to have some kind of impact beyond just being, you know... Like, beyond just being what could literally be anything else being kidnapped or being stolen. Yeah, I mean, it's... You, you might have, a, let's say, a detective noir type thing and the PI is put on the case of you know, some missing children. And you the children don't really have a lot of characterization because they're stalking horses, that they're a means to an end. Okay, that's fine, that's that type of story. But yeah. you don't then wheel in one child and then cram loads and loads of sentiment into three pages and then kill that child off. That's, no. That's, that's lazy and obviously structurally unsound. Yeah. It, it often makes me think of Broadchurch. Did you ever watch Broadchurch? No, that was one of those weird things that everyone was talking about it, but every time I looked at it, to me, it looked like Brookside, so, which I'm sure it wasn't at all. But I just it just kept flipping my, oh God, is this a soap opera thing? So I didn't end up seeing it yet. Fair enough. Um, but, you know, without wanting to give any spoilers, even the character who is literally, the boy who is literally dead at the beginning, um, gets characterization. um more than just being oh the little victim um over the course of the story because of memories and flashbacks um and also the way that other characters are talking about them yeah um so it is you know it is possible to have uh to, to kind of to build up a character and it's okay if for whatever reason within your story the child does end up a victim but yeah fridging um yeah it, it to be honest it, it it just it just feels quite unsatisfying really yeah definitely um okay having said all that there are children who are older than the years both in fiction and in real life yes this usually comes about for several reasons um it, a child is naturally extremely intelligent at a very early age Yes. Um, they're very naturally compassionate or empathic. Mm -hmm. uh, they may have survived trauma. That quite often ages a child beyond their years. Yes. Um, they are the eldest child. Again, they're being pushed into a more adult role earlier simply because they're the eldest child. Or a child is used only to the company of adults, possibly because they're an only child or they're the youngest child, but all the other siblings are much older and have already left home. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um this is the nice thing is like it doesn't always have to be trauma 
no no it can it can be a variety of reasons it can be a combination of things yeah um i mean my mother was half convinced that i'd been here and done it all before and she said she said whatever she did wasn't quite the right thing to do because she could never predict how i was going to think about something <laughs> and she said the other i had never didn't have anywhere near as much trouble with the other two <laughs> so um yeah it, it okay some of that's just me being weird but I see flashes of that in in one of my nieces and it's um it's a case of okay that kid came out of the box really really bright and really naturally quite empathic and yeah. sensitive to how other people think and feel mm. and is impatient with people their own age and I'm like I really feel you I absolutely do <laughs> you know? yeah yeah absolutely um and yet fart jokes are still fucking hilarious. Well, of course they are. They're children. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that and that is the thing. Still a child. Yes. Um, they might just kind of have a, a different sort of understanding of the world. It, just in the way that they consider it, in the way that they understand it and they process it. But as we've said, their experience is still going to be jarred by, well, their complete lack of experience because yeah. they're children. And finally, let's have a look at some of the odd ones. So, yes. <laughs> you know, very specifically, this is sort of speculative fiction, speculative fiction for adults. We'll, we'll limit it to that. But mm -hmm. there are all sorts of reasons why a child character may, in fact, not behave like a child at all. Yes. So the first one is that they are not, in fact, a child. Shocker. Um, they're just trapped in a child's body. So you get this with things like vampire children, for example. Yeah, uh, a very specifically interview with a vampire. Um, Claudia, the young vampire child who was made by Lestat and mm -hmm. sort of raised as a daughter by him and Louis. Well, she stops being a child pretty early on internally. And then mm -hmm. after that, she's kind of an 80 or 90 year old woman. Yeah. And yet she's never been allowed to grow up. And she becomes quite spiteful and malicious because of it, because there's something fundamentally not right there. And if you've ever seen the film Interview with the Vampire, it's got a young um, Kirsten Dunst in it, mm. and she is absolutely uncanny. As in, she, she, the girl playing it at the time, Kirsten Dunst, is around, I think, sort of 11. So she's very yeah. much still a child. And yet when she looks up sometimes it is like a much older creature is looking out of her eyes she is quite chilling <laughs> really really impressive i don't think she ever acted anything else quite as well again but it was it's really uncanny how she's captured it see i've never seen it it's well worth seeing but um, yeah it's one of those to... things on the list <laughs> <laughs> sort of vampire lushes in new orleans <laughs> So yeah, the the child trapped within a child's body. I mean, I think that comes out in a lot of um, you know, uh, vampire type fiction, as you said. So I think there's the fledgling by Octavia Butler, which goes to some very weird places. Yeah. Uh, it. I mean, it's an interesting concept, to be honest. They even made a joke about it in What We Do in the Shadows, the movie. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like a, oh, what are you ladies doing out tonight? Oh, we're just, we're just hunting paedophiles or something like that. Oh <laughs> yeah, it's the two little girls, isn't it's it? The two little girls, yeah. It's like the ultimate to catch a predator. Yeah. 
that was dark um so, so yeah um you know it, it's kind of it's kind of been used um on plenty of occasions and yeah particularly whenever there's kind of an immortal sort of storyline um you see it used all the time in a very kind of suspicious manner in uh, things like anime where yes. it's like a it's like a oh this character is you know this character looks and acts like a child um but they are actually a really really ancient old you know creature therefore the way that they act and the way that they're sexualized is totally acceptable uh, um, i hate that born sexy yesterday thing yes you know or you get it with um you basically get it with uh, androids and things as well where it's a case of ah oh, this android is only sort of really switched on yesterday and she has the body of a 16 year old girl but technically she's only a day old and it's like yeah and that might be infinity to an android but it's not infinity to a human that's really <laughs> really weird <laughs> she's literally been alive five minutes <laughs> this is not cool don't no. do it <laughs> it's weird and it's uncomfortable thank you <laughs> Um, other reasons. Well, the child is old for their age for whatever reason, but quite often it's to do with being very super intelligent. So, yeah. for example, Hermione in Harry Potter. Or yeah. In my case, Amy in the Unveiled series. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you also get examples of this in, and this is obviously for children, but Artemis Fowl. Yeah. Um, I mean, he is super intelligent. He's a crime lord, um, <laughs> etc. Uh, I kind of actually like that trope. Particularly when it's it's the super intelligent child, but they still are still a child. You know what I which mean. Which means their brilliance is uneven. Which means they will at some point make a big mistake because they're a child. Because they're children. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, definitely. You also get it in. Uh, you know, I, I've mentioned it before. The lies of Locke Lamora. Um, Locke is obviously a brilliant child, but he is still a child and doesn't quite understand how the world works. But he's yeah. very intelligent. Um, so much so he's an idiot. <laughs> um, other things. Reincarnation. They, yes! <laughs> th this is an old soul in a child's body. They have lived many lifetimes before and seen this shit before. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which I kind of like as a trope, actually. But it's it's one that doesn't always get the sort of level of, I guess... Uh, exploration that it should do and it's a very difficult character to have as a protagonist because I think a lot of people don't necessarily want to deal with the fact that the child adult divide is literally happening within a single body yeah yeah absolutely um it can be done in, a, in an interesting way uh, what uh, what I like is whenever you see it's like yes they are they're reincarnated and so perhaps they have memories and they have access to certain things still but at the end of the day, despite the fact they're reincarnated, they're still children. Yeah. And um, I, I think where it gets dicey with this one is, oh, yes, I've lived 30 lifetimes before this. And, and I was you were my wife kind of thing, like um, just a year, just sort of six years ago. And you've never moved on. I'm your husband and it's kind of like okay you're getting into a weird sexualization territory and I'm not okay with it yeah <laughs> starting to get uncomfortable please stop <laughs> yeah definitely so um th there are just things where I think maybe we should just not do that it's been done it's not like no one's explored it ask Japan okay <laughs>
<laughs> Ask anime at large. Um, the, a fun one is that the child character has body swapped with an adult. So things like big and 13 going on 30. Yeah. Now, this is one of the... What's the one with Tom Hanks? That is big, isn't it? That is big, yeah. Yeah. Um, again, like, the concept is like, oh, that's really fun and, and stuff like that. Um, and then and then you're like, okay, but he... Yeah, it's Tom Hanks' body, so you might forget, but, like, that's still a child. Why, why are sexy things happening? Yeah, that's the bit in big that I'm like, yeah, that's not okay. <laughs> this, is, this is just a bit weird. Um, that that was a weird thing. I mean, I get the thing that what they were going for is that a child's simplistic and uncomplicated view just cuts through a lot of the bullshit that the adult had kind of piled up in their life. Yeah, but I don't think they needed that bit in there as well. They could have just had it as a, a "you're actually listening to me" and you suggested something that kind of makes sense, kind of thing. If you had to go anywhere near the relationship aspect at all. Yeah, Absolutely. I don't think they do that in thirteen going on thirty, and also there's a big difference between thirteen and eight. So uh, yes, yes, so there at, really is. <laughs> at thirteen, most girls are probably looking at other girls or boys <laughs> or whoever, and, yeah. and starting to form crushes and things. So. Yeah, I mean that's even the premise of thirteen going on thirty is that she starts yeah. in the cupboard. It's that whole kind of you know uh, that dare thing of two two people you know getting into the cupboard and getting up to all sorts of stuff i it's been a long time since i've seen it so i don't know if there is actually i don't know if there's a sex scene in it i really I don't, hope not i don't think so but again i've only seen it once and i haven't seen it recently so i won't comment but yeah i think it's slightly less squicky than that part of big because otherwise big is actually quite a good film yeah but yet that bit is kind of like, oh, it was the 80s and we didn't care about this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the thing is, like, depending on how it was played, um, I think it is conceivable that a... Not an eight-year-old, to be honest. Like, that's even... That's just too much. Um, but that a uh, that, that someone who is, let's say, you know, a teenager who was transformed into an adult might actually sort of try and get it on and stuff like that. Um, that's not beyond the realms of possibility. But yeah. you'd, have have to, you'd have to tread very carefully there because I feel like there's... At the end of the day, that's still a child... Yeah. I really liked the reverse that they did in Buffy the Vampire Slayer in the episode called Band Candy, where what happened was they'd been, you know, Buffy and her friends, they're all sort of about 16, 17. So technically children, but technically also adults, I guess. But they're, yeah. they're being forced to sell this candy to support the marching band and buy the new uniforms. Mm -hmm. And they sell a bunch to parents and things. And this band candy is enchanted. And it sets all the adults back to being their teenage selves. So the adults <laughs> suddenly are all running around acting like teenagers, all of them at once. Not going to lie, I love that trope. <laughs> and it's like, that's a really, really clever way of doing it without doing the body swap or anything. But looking at the difference in mindset between a 16-year-old and someone who is in their mid-30s or 40s or whatever and has a mortgage and all the life cares that you get as an adult. It's like, yeah, yeah that's, um, that's cool because... Particularly at the end where uh, 
there's another episode where Buffy said, you know, did you ever wish that you were back at my age? And her mother's like, no. <laughs> She's like, would I be 16 again? No, I like to look back fondly. But you know what? It's it's fond because I don't have to do it again. <laughs> and I have to say, yeah, I completely agree. I would not go back to being 16. That would be awful. No, like, yeah. If you're someone who would, I think then there's something missing, in my opinion. This is my very much my, my opinionated view on this, that mm. you haven't worked some shit out if you you would be desperate to go back to being 16. Anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it I, obviously depends also what part of your life you're at. Like, <laughs> uh, Yeah, maybe. I mean, going back to being sort of 16 in the sense that I can get away with this little sleep, I can eat what I want, I can go... I have this much energy. I have. Yeah, I don't have to don't, worry about all this. I yeah, don't maybe. creak when I get up. <laughs> but the whole sort of growing pains thing. It's like, no, that wasn't fun. That no, sucked balls. It was awful. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, okay. And uh, another example: the child character has access to more information than most people due to being psychic, for example. So, like the yes. sixth sense or um, ether in betwixt and between. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Again, I also kind of like this because um, you still get to explore what it's like for them as a child because even if they do have access to certain information, that doesn't mean that they necessarily process it very well um, yeah. or that they're they're even kind of they they're even wise to it. Yeah, definitely because you can take on information at a very early age and yet not be emotionally ready for it absolutely yeah um you just you you can't really kind of process it in the same way or completely understand it or actually even want it so you know you might not actually be able to deal with it um, for example the the time traveler's wife yeah when originally um he starts to go back in time to meet his younger self he introduces him to this idea of time traveling but he doesn't tell him that it's actually he's his, he's the older version of it yeah but the he you know as a child he rem he then remembers the point where he realized oh it's not that there's this whole order of of time travelers like he was kind of hoping for it's just him and there's this crippling kind of sense of almost loneliness that goes along with that yeah um and yeah so he had that you know that information could have been given to him but actually he wasn't really ready for it yeah definitely um and i think that's the same with Oh god, why is it gone out of my head? It's Mark Lawrence's sort of sci-fi romance. Um, with I know that's a weird combo, uh, <laughs> trilogy, and it's like, uh, uh, do you know the, the the title of the books has gone out of my head? It's going to come back to me later and really annoy me. But yeah, it's the same thing except that you've got a, a sort of fifteen-year-old boy, I think, and he he knows that the, the man who turns up is his older self he finds out yeah but the man who turns up says yeah so nick um you need to stop pretending you're not a genius now because i really need you to put your your brain and gear into inventing time travel <laughs> in order to get this done so that i can come back and have this conversation with you because you know what we we can't take much true time with us yeah um but 
what you can do when the love of your life has a terrible accident in the future and basically loses all brain function you can record all of her memories now and take them back with you that's basically all you can do without altering the timeline yeah which is a hell of a thing to put on a 15 year old boy <laughs> and it's very clever the way it's the way it's done um and again, once it, I suppose all of these are really examining the child-adult divide, and it's the whole thing with mayflies, where you know they they sort of gestate at the bottom of a pond, and then it's the story of you know one of them says, "Well, when I go up there, I'll come back and tell you what it's like." But of course, once a mayfly comes out of the the larval stage and develops wings and flies, it can't then go back into the water, <laughs> so no one can come back and tell you what it's like. Yeah. <laughs> So there's that. Um, but yeah, basically, basically the world is your lobster with this idea. <laughs> but you must set up the parameters carefully. So each idea comes with its own set of difficulties and traumas. Trapping a person in a child's body, for example, mm. will cause that person to become pretty twisted, particularly if their mind, it, you know, if it's a case of you freeze them as being a child and they're a child forever, but their mind continues to develop. Yeah. Then, yeah, that's going to cause problems. The only way it would work is if that person will always be a child, both mentally and physically. So the two things will always match. Yeah, a little bit like in Twilight, for example. Yeah. Um, Edward and Co. They are perpetually teenagers, even though they will sort of, kind of get lots of knowledge, kind of building up. They're still always perpetually teenagers. Yeah. Some part of them stays seventeen. Yeah. Some part mentally as well. Yeah. So, yes. Okay, a quick look at our own child characters. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, it, I suppose it's easier for me because technically my books are for either older teenagers or adults. So, yes, I do have child characters. Um, Amy, obviously, is now an adult in her own series, but as a child in Unveiled, I know one person said, you know, she comes across as being older than her years uh, perhaps a little bit too intelligent mm. i'm like well she is literally a a genius b she's just lost her mother and that sort of thing tends to age you yeah plus two older sisters and she's impatient with people her own age you know she's just one of those people who's naturally a bit older than he is yeah absolutely um i guess that's probably one of the reasons i always really liked amy yeah. And kind of associated with her um, because I just, I kind of felt like we were, you know, because I was reading it as an adult. Yes. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I like this character. <laughs> I mean, in Harker and Blackthorn, she sort of reflects that because she's so busy chasing after an adult life, because she was so impatient to be mm. able to do what she intellectually was ready for that she may have left some emotional development stages behind she sort of muses about this that's a yeah and that's a really interesting thing for me because it is such a strange and very true phenomenon um which is that there are so many children you know there are so many adults now who are looking back who were who were sort of you know classed as oh they're very mature um, who are now kind of seen as being immature. And it, I think a large part of that is because they might not have actually had the chance to develop in the way that they needed to develop 
um, or they might have actually been forced to kind of abandon childhood in aid of doing something else, taking on adult responsibilities, for example, which they shouldn't have had to do. Um, and that is one of the interesting things about being, you know, sort of being allowed to be a child is that it is about you do develop emotionally as well as physically. Um, and so you can be mature in some ways and actually be very emotionally undeveloped in others, which is actually something which appears in one of my characters. Can't talk about this project too much at the moment, but I do have a character who, again, uh, lost her mother and has been put into some pretty severe financial straits by a very cruel um, and uncaring uh, sort of guardian figure. Um, and this character is, in some respects, incredibly um, emotionally mature, um, and but socially is very immature because they had to drop out of school. Um, they don't really have that much experience with people. They don't really know how to communicate with people. And this isn't something that they kind of come to properly realise until further down the line where they're suddenly suddenly met with oh god I don't actually know how to communicate with people and people don't necessarily like me yeah so it's <laughs> it's really interesting for me um, how all these things can tie up and I think it, it rings true specifically for a lot of people who might have actually felt also might have been ostracized when they were growing up because they um, are part of a minority or they're different um, and suddenly found themselves while they were at university or something like that they kind of go through this second childhood yeah yeah definitely um, I've also played into the, the child is a bit psychic type trope as well with um, <laughs> more with more with Aoife in betwixt and between. Aoife can literally see into the Fey realm, which does change your perspective on life. Yeah, I mean that's the... <laughs> to and be honest, that's, that can't be healthy for you. It can't be good for you. She's, I mean, she's only ten years old, and um, so there's a distinct, you know, M is like nine years older than her, which is a huge leap. To be honest, it's a huge leap between Aoife and Sorica, who is 14. Yeah. Um, and again, but all three of them get on really, really well. This is M meeting Kieran's sisters. Yeah. Um, and I suppose their magical fey adventure, which is pretty grim in places, changes things more. I, I will admit there are ideas for a, a, a quartet of books about Aoife as well when she reaches adulthood, because I think she's going to hit some similar problems in the sense that she's had all this extra information. Everyone's always thought she's preternaturally mature and she just knows things. Mm. And yet, emotionally, she has difficulty moving through through our, our world. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's similar to the way I did Joshua, for example, yeah. Um, now, Jonathan obviously doesn't really have context for the powers that he's developed. He doesn't have guidance, he's just on his own, so that really kind of does play into how he reacts to things. Um, in contrast, uh, 
Joshua does. He has had this guide in the form of Rufus. And Joshua is a, is a mix between being, because of the kind of the things that he's had to go through, being a little bit dependent, you know, and being kind of a little bit clingy to Rufus in a way that most 12-year-olds would, you know, at this point they would stop being clingy towards their... Um, uh, whatchamacallit, their guardians. Um, but Joshua is because he has almost ro- lost Rufus. And not only that, he's almost lost Rufus, but was also very, very aware psychically of the torture that Rufus went through. So he's a child who has, in some respects, shared the physical trauma that his brother experienced. And that yeah. is not going to be good for anyone. So he, in some respects, he's much older. He's much wiser. In other respects, he's actually a lot younger than he should be. Yeah, definitely. But he still reads as a child to me as well. Yeah. Good. <laughs> definitely. Um, I suppose my final big example would be Cuthbert. <laughs> who obviously grows up over the series of King's Night, but in Revolt he is still about sort of 10, 11 years old. He has not had the best start in life. His parents sold him into indentured servitude to a blacksmith who did not treat him very well. No. Understatement. And then Gregory just comes along and goes, I don't like the way you're treating that boy. I'm going to force you to sell him to me. <laughs> Um, Madeline knows far more about Cuthbert than most people, simply yes. because she has an entire book about I the do, subject. I do have an entire book about Cuthbert, and I will forever be grateful. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Um, it's for me. It's it's the uh, it's the whole sort of I don't like the way you're treating this child. I'm going to intervene, and it's mostly to annoy you. Oh no, this child has wormed his way into my heart. <laughs> And I think actually one of the things that really makes the the King's Knight such a powerful book is the fact that you do have Cuthbert's perspective and Gregory needs Cuthbert's perspective in this book um, in order for any of the things that have happened to happen. So for example, if Cuthbert was not Cuthbert and didn't have this kind of this childish view of knights and knightlyhood and stuff like that. Yeah. He would not have run in to, you know, the tavern when he saw Chaucer being attacked. Um, because, first of all, as an adult, he would have recognised, oh no, that's a big no-no. You don't yeah. just go in and interrupt your master. Um, he wouldn't have done that. He wouldn't have sort of alerted um, the... Gregory to the situation and even if he had Gregory would not have listened to him if he hadn't had to deal with Cuthbert dejectedly walking away with the hope going out of his eyes (laughs) yeah it sort of reconnected Gregory with a time when he was a child and believed as ardently as Cuthbert does and it's kind of like ugh fine i'll do something it's entirely self-centered <laughs> yeah um and, and so he, he's great because he's kind of this um 
this inroad for Gregory to actually start dealing with his own trauma. Yeah, and, uh, you know, he, a lot of the other things that happened wouldn't have happened if Gregory hadn't sort of moved slightly. He hadn't taken a sidestep emotionally, one pace to the right kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, Jules and I have actually had very long conversations about what the story would have been like if if Cuthbert weren't there. And let me tell you, it does not end happily. <laughs> I mean, I... I have to say, I would love to be able to hold my hand up and say, yes, everything I did there, I did absolutely on purpose. I am that clever, but I'm not. What happened was I thought, this is a bit bare. Gregory just riding around by himself is a bit bare. I need something else. <laughs> and then I just wrote this scene where you just have this boy and, you know, not an appealing child, but quite a scrappy, scarred little urchin. Yeah. And I sent it to Madeline and said, does this work or is this annoyingly Blackadder-esque? <laughs> Madeline came back with, I love him! I guess guess I'm keeping this character then. And it was only much, much later, after I'd actually written it, that I thought, well, hell, that's how that made the whole thing work. Yeah, absolutely. I do remember, because you were unsure, you are like, should I I keep this? I was like, don't you dare get rid of it! And he provides a much lighter note because a lot of the things that happen in the King's Night, I know I present a lot of it fun in a funny manner, but it's, it's really dark. It's grim. A lot of the stuff that happens is really grim. It is. Yeah. So yeah, um I think that there have definitely been occasions where I've not because one of the things actually when I was writing um Blood of the Delphi is I did have one of my editors be like, um, not sure that Joshua's acting age appropriate here. Um, and I was like, I'm glad you're here because I, I just, at this point, I had no context for yeah. how 12 year olds acted because I looked back at sort of what I was like as a 12 year old and I was just feral. Um, I think that's <laughs> the best word for it. I was feral and really strange going through all sorts of weird things and I just thought I don't think this is normal but the the more the older I am now the more I'm kind of certain that actually most 12 year old girls are just a tiny bit feral yeah I think that's normal I think it is normal but at the time I was just there like no I I can't be drawing from personal experience here We've got an image of Madeline roaming the grounds outside her house, hair unkempt, gnawing bones. <laughs> You're not wrong. Um, <laughs> howling at the moon. Um, <laughs> my, my mother always said, uh, "You're not allowed to be a bad teenager." I used all of my patience up with you when you were a child, so apparently I had to be a very well-behaved teenager because. I was just a little too much. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think I don't think um it's it's necessarily a bad thing to kind of fumble a little bit with this. I think it's something you can develop and learn to do over time and I think there's always going to be a case where some people will be like that's not how children behave and other people will be like oh my god that's exactly how children behave yeah um so you kind of just sort of have to find a bit of a balance I think yeah um and there is obviously the very definite someone has not put any thought into this child character at all they've just 
put the child there to try and elicit an emotional response without putting the work in, which yeah. is very frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, on that note, it is time for us to finish off. Before we go, um, we would love to hear from you. Who are some of your favourite child characters? Do you agree with what you've said? Do you disagree? Um, please let us know. Remember, you can get in touch with us via our Facebook, our Twitter, or our in- um, Instagram. <laughs> Jules! Do we have Instagram? <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry. Our Tumblr, both individually or through the Dissecting Dragons pages. Um, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week, though. And Jules, I believe that you have got one for us. Yes, I just finished an advanced review audio copy of Daughter of the Moon Goddess by Su Lin Tan. And it's it's really good. It kind of restored my faith in young adult fiction. It's obviously looking at... Um, it basically, it's a continuation of the myth of the, the Chinese moon goddess and how she came to be imprisoned in the moon um, mm-hmm. and what happened to her husband, the hunter. Uh, but from the perspective of her daughter, who the celestial emperor and empress do not know anything about. And it ki- it's kind of a bit like the goose girl and a little bit like monkey and also a little bit like Cinderella mm. in the sense that she has to go down to from the moon to the, the, the celestial realm because they're all immortals there and kind of works her way up. And her big quest is to find a way of freeing her mother um, so that she can see her again. But... She does an awful lot of things on her own merit. And if what you really like is is kind of like a Tamora Pierce-esque thing where a book is a series of adventures featuring the same character, then you'll love this because that's what it does. It's not a linear plot with one destination and one character just trying to get there and maybe a flash of romance on the side. It is a, a series of adventures and each one gradually builds up the character a little bit more. Um, mm. And the character is impulsive and hot-tempered and she tends she's she's never ever had to sort of conceal what she wants to say so she has dreadful trouble not speaking her mind you know (laughs) I I understand that but she's also incredibly honorable and brave and she is you know quite kind as well so Mm. she's a really great character to get behind and there are all sorts of fantastical beasts in it so you've got the imprisoned celestial dragons and um and and all sorts of Chinese myth monsters and, and folklore and things. Um, Chinese yeah. folklore is wild and I it love is it. It is absolutely <laughs> mad. I mean, yeah, I mean, and, and and the author has leaned into it as in the Celestials travel by cloud, for example. Yes, cloud jumping, yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's really, really good and it's really well written. And I was just, I, I just sort of thought, oh, I'll, I'll give this a punt. They've sent me an arc. And I got so invested in it. I was just listening to it all the time, no matter what I was doing. Oh, that's really cool. It's because I'm I'm re uh, I'm redoing um, Journey to the West at the moment, Monkey. Yeah. And I just I really really love it. So when you sent me that, I was like, oh, okay. Actually, I feel like this is really going to be in my ballpark um, yeah. at the moment. So I'm I've got it on my. Uh, 
to be to be read list. In fact, I've already bought it on on Audible. I've pre-ordered it. <laughs> yeah, Ma- Madeline got a hasty sort of. Okay, this is a ninety nine p deal on Kindle today, and if you get it, then you can get the audiobook for four pounds fifty. Or something. It's like it's... I really think you'll enjoy this. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm I'm really looking forward to it because it it does sound like totally my jam. Um, it does sound very very interesting. Uh, so yeah um, this sounds like a great one I will be listening to it soon um, so perhaps I'll be able to add to that recommendation for now though um, we're going to say thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week yeah thanks and goodbye bye you've been listening to Dissecting Dragons the speculative fiction podcast You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.